This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. The $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan delivers a shot in the arm to the US economy at the same time as the coronavirus vaccination rollout picks up speed. Business leaders are optimistic about the economic impact of the stimulus and the easing of the pandemic. For the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce of Metro Orlando, the pandemic triggered an emergency response as the chamber scrambled to help members stay afloat. It's also changed the way the chamber does business, and those changes could last for years. Well, John Diamas is the Executive Board Chair of the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce of Metro Orlando. Thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. I want to just cast um, our minds back to the last 12 months for a moment and thinking about how it's been uh, experiencing the pandemic. What has the last 12 months been like for you from a business perspective? You know, like everybody else, has been extraordinarily challenging, especially in the Orlando region where our economy is so dependent on service economies. Um, anything that's related to that suffers the ups and downs when the economy takes a dive. And it has particularly impacted the the Hispanic businesses as they are so correlated to the service, to hospitality, to food, to construction, and so on. Most, most of the industries that exist in this region. Do you have a sense, John, uh, like have you lost members over the last 12 months or have you seen businesses that have been members of the Chamber of Commerce go under because they just haven't been able to stay afloat? Yeah, that's a good question. We just went through the whole process a few weeks ago. And sadly, we, we, we lost some, number, some members that just couldn't keep uh, afloat. These are, these are members that, mind you, when businesses are not strong during good times, they're not going to be strong in bad times. And, and unfortunately, we had some members lose their business. Uh, thankfully, though, looking around, we didn't lose as many as we were actually projecting. So all in all, we're actually pretty content with where we are today. However, it was extraordinarily sad to see some of our businesses that have been in place for a long time go away. And, you know, of course, we're hoping that gradually we will be able to get back uh, to normal, but it's going to take a little bit of time. Yeah, I wonder too, I mean, the flip side of that is, you know, there have been some businesses which have been able to adapt um, you know, during the pandemic, some have even thrived because of the nature of the work they do. So what are you seeing in terms of the chamber? Like, have there been some positives um, or businesses that have been able to to kind of thrive in the, the strange economy we've been in over the last 12 months? Yeah, uh, it, it should be said that during the last year, the chamber literally converted itself from a brick and mortar type of institution to a digital platform. Something that was absolutely remarkable. This is like flying an airplane and fixing the airplane and making it prettier, you know, as it's flying from from New York to London. And and and, and it was it was uh, it was both tragic, tiring, exhausting. But the chamber was there, you know. Over eighty different seminars in both English and Spanish were were held, and all the seminars really designed to help the businesses survive and thrive during the pandemic, including helping an enormous amount of business get access to to new capital through the PPP uh, program. What's interesting though, and I've always been a subscriber to this, I always tell business, please get better now when things are good and, and, and build your competitive advantages 
and, and, and build your marketplace and, and create those vital ties to your consumers so when bad times come in, you're able to withstand it. The businesses that were able to do that, like you said, not only grew, but they thrived. Mm-hmm. Any standouts, like just in terms of the, the nature of the work they were doing? Well, you know, like I said, it was a very engaging process because the chamber was not only providing seminars, but we had this thing called Ben, which is basically uh, a group of us, people that provide management consulting, social media, uh, operations, accounting, legal. We came to the rescue for free. An enormous amount of what I would call management consulting services were dished out throughout the entire year, just by the asking. And a lot of those conversations, a lot of those personal one-on-one engagements really led to a lot of those people not only be able to keep afloat, but also uh, thrive. Interestingly enough, some of our food-related businesses did well. Why is that? Well, again, you know, part of it because of the chamber and our help, and part because they had people that were receptive to learning. You know, you, you have to be receptive to learning you have to be receptive to ask for help and get help. And the ones that did benefit tremendously, you know, it's basically solid and good management practices that were taught throughout the year, but also a flood of ideas and and, and knowledge that was shared with all our members, uh, not only to change their business model. You know, if you're a restaurant, and you were waiting for people to come inside and you waited for that, I think you're going to drown and you probably are not out of business. But the ones that that merge themselves or change themselves to, uh, you know, delivery, to using platforms like Uber and DoorDash, you know, um, outdoor, outdoor dining. And again, not only just the ones that did it, because a lot of them did it, but the ones that did it the fastest. Right. The ones that were able to adjust the fastest. Mm-hmm. You talked about um, one of the things you were doing to help businesses was was kind of help them um, access PPP loans. Uh, was that a, a, a big learning process for the chamber as well, kind of trying to figure out how that whole system works so you could then help your members? It was a quick learning process for all of us. We had amazing individuals at the board level that were either CPAs or financial advisors or they were um, in, in the business world in general, or banking per se. I mean, many of the of our trustees are banking institutions, and we basically held hands and basically shared with each other what we had learned for the day because the information basically trickled. But there was one particular uh, trustee, Addition Finance, their, their credit union here in town, um, and their CEO, who was extraordinarily supportive um, of, of the cause, and they literally opened the doors wide open for all our clients and all, all our members. Um, and it, you have no idea the number of loans that were processed in two or three, four days, because this was a timing issue. There were businesses that were about ready to close. I, I, I think that I can actually attest that if it not been for the PPP, and the timely rendition and and the availability and our ability as a chamber to not only identify the members who needed help, but also help them with the process of applying. And that, you know, it was a pretty cumbersome application the first time around. It got better the second time. 
Um, it was an enormous effort. I mean, we were working until 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night, almost every single day, just trying to get our members through because one or two days later, notice that, one or two days later, they would have been out of business. Hmm. Aside from the PPP loans, like were financing operations willing to lend money last year or was everybody a little bit shy of um, putting capital out there? Because that, that sounds like that was one of the biggest needs for businesses just to keep things moving. You know, uh, I've always said that financial needs are not the greatest needs. I've always said that good management and good sound practices and good vision and good strategy, that's the biggest need. And teaching the businesses do that first. In this particular case, it was a bit of an emergency. And if it hadn't been for the SBA, the Small Business Administration, frankly, and the U.S. Senate, which really drove the PPP agenda, uh, that would have never happened. So for banks, it was actually a good thing to do because they got paid to do this. Now, I don't think they got paid to work to work 24-7, you know, <laughs> have everybody, you know, working like, I mean, I was talking to, to people at additional finance at 10 o'clock at night. Those are not banker hours, let me tell you, <laughs> uh, whatsoever. But everybody was really joining forces. And, and sadly, there were other banks which, you know, should have been there and they weren't. So, you know, it, I always say it is, it is when things are rough and tough that you understand who are the people who are going to be there to let you hire? Mm-hmm. If you're just joining me, my guest is John Diamas. He's the executive board chair of the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce of Metro Orlando. Um, what role, John, does the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce now play in the recovery? Like, what what role do you see yourselves playing over the next twelve months? Because of 2020 and really looking at the future, you know, we've we've traditionally been. Um, an organization where there, there's been a lot of networking and a lot of events and a lot of training seminars and so on. And that's really, that's really met the needs uh, in the past. But uh, I guarantee you that's not going to be uh, fulfilling all our members' needs in the future. People are looking for value and people are looking for, for ROI on their investment. If they give you X amount of dollars for membership, people are expecting more than just a network or after-hour mm-hmm. type of, of, of event. Again, those are very helpful. We're going to continue to do that. But uh, we launched what we believe to be is a new era. We, we launched three new uh, pillars that are not just meant for 2021, but they're really meant as the foundation for the Hispanic Chamber as we move forward. And within those pillars, we have three uh, levers that are absolutely critical, not only for for the growth of our businesses, but also for the strengthening of the Hispanic community in uh, Metro Orlando, Central Florida region, and having said that, you know the whole the whole process starts with commerce. After all, we are the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. So th- that word has been there for about thirty years, but this time it's becoming a focal point as to how we're going to drive. And within that commerce uh, uh, element, we have. Uh, commerce between members to members, and I'll tell you a little bit about that, members to trustees and trustees to trustee. What that means is that we want commerce to happen naturally every day, instituting a series of systems, process, uh, different types of infrastructures. So every member at the chamber gets to have their digital commerce store available to any other members and of course, establishing the culture of encouraging members to buy and sell from each other. 
I mean, is that something you've been doing already? Is this just like a formalizing that or, or what? Oh, yeah, of course, commerce has been happening for a long time. This is mostly uh, formalizing it and actually developing the, the technology and the software and the digital realm. So it, it, it happens 24-7. So if you buy coffee, toilet paper, or uniforms, or you buy social media, you, you first think about your fellow members, and then you're easily able to go through the site and look at all the stores, who sells what. And of course, every store, just like any merchandising entity, will have specials for the week, specials for the day, you know, encouraging that buy and selling. And just like you're buying services, encourage others to buy from you. Um, it, it's, it's very difficult to create commerce at this intensity when you meet monthly per se, you know, or once in a while at a after hour. This is an active, very direct, very engaging way, not only between members and members, but we also want members to be buying and selling from our trustees, which are basically some of the biggest companies in Central Florida and vice versa as well. And let's not forget our trustees because, you know, they also need revenue to grow. So how do we make sure that we create the landscape and the environment so trustees can also buy and sell from each other? So that's just one element. But but are you um, are you involved to the extent that you're kind of creating something kind of like a, a Craigslist or a Facebook marketplace for the commerce to actually happen, you know, on the Chamber of Commerce site? Or, or is it you just make the connection and then... The, whatever commerce happens kind of between the, the two people who are doing that trade, if that makes sense. You know, uh, it, it is both, is both. As in any new thing or any culture that you try to establish, it takes an awful lot of work to communicate it, to explain it, and then to make it user-friendly so people can actually start doing it and seeing their benefits. You know, this is something that I did before a few years ago at an, in another city, and it's almost unbelievable and almost magical to see how your own revenues from a single member can shoot up in three to six months just by having access to the Orlando Chamber of Commerce marketplace. So if you look at the Orlando, the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, you can say, yes, it is a marketplace. It is a new marketplace. And if you're a member, you have the right and the privilege to buy and sell from each other. Do you have to have a lot of staff to keep that running? Like are you having to staff up a little bit to, to make that happen? Yes, and I'm glad you asked because we we actually uh, reduced our staff um, last year just to be able to you know keep the chamber afloat and you know not cutting services that were really critical for that time. Uh, we also saw an awful lot of volunteers coming to the rescue. There is no way that a chamber staff of any kind can possibly do this by themselves. You know we're 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 beginning to create not only more board participation. And I think we have the greatest board on earth. I mean, these people are not only extraordinarily qualified, but super smart, but mostly these people really want to get their hands dirty and and, and truly make, a, make an impact. So we're actually launching a series of uh, teams and working teams and committees that are going to oversee not only the commerce um, pillar per se, but also the coaching, which is the second pillar, and the community, which is the third. We talked a little bit about the PPP loans uh, last year and some of the financial help from the federal government. Uh, what about this next tranche of, of assistance, you know, the $1.9 trillion rescue package? How, how do you see that shaking out, like the Florida component? 
and what that means for your members. Yeah, you know, the BBB loan is that this would be, if there is a BBB loan or something like it, would be the, the third time because there was a BBB loan, you know, the first one, then there was a second. I mean, this is one of the biggest, most massive uh, packages that I think we've seen in history. And, and surely I hope that there's going to be enough money out there set up to help small businesses because as you can tell, the pandemic, we're not done with the pandemic. Uh, we're, we're still living it. And it's going to be like that for probably another couple of years. What about vaccinations? I mean, as more of those come online, are you kind of hopeful for the you know the next few months at least as, as things start to yeah. maybe revert to some semblance of normalcy? Yeah, yeah, we're very hopeful. And uh, there's two types of hopeful. There is psychological hopeful, and then there is realistic hopeful. You know, I think both are very helpful. You know, people really wanting to make sure that 2021 is going to go in a much better direction than 2020. So there's a lot of hope, a lot of wish. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> At the same time, you know, there's the reality of the pandemic that we still have, you know, 60, 70,000 people being infected per day. And frankly, some people not taking it seriously. So how how, how long is going to stay around? Um, um, who knows? Now, the vaccines, though, that's been the most pleasant surprise uh, so far because we heard about the vaccines back in September mm-hmm. and they're coming and they're coming and they're coming. And then we see January and February was pretty dismal. All of a sudden, the last week, we're doing two or three million vaccinations per day. Mm-hmm. So I'm personally very helpful. And I think that's going to not only help the psychic um of the marketplace because the cycle of the marketplace is fear. Mm. You know, fear is plaguing people from going out and shopping and interacting with each other. And the speed of the vaccine is quite rapid right now. So yeah, I'm very hopeful. It's, it's, it looks very promising. Finally, John, I just wanted to ask a kind of a, a, a bigger picture question. And you alluded to this a little bit at the start of our conversation, talking about the, uh, you know, the particular threats to the central Florida economy and, and, uh, you know, Hispanic-owned and operated businesses within that, because we are such a service sector economy here in Central Florida, do you think Central Florida's economy is going to shift, or are you? Do you think it's it's time that we kind of reframed it a bit away from some of the uh, kind of service sector to make it a bit more robust, or do you think it's going to take more than a pandemic to do that? Yeah, well, you know, you know, we went through the same questioning in two thousand and eight and two thousand and nine when the the recession went. I mean, I was living in New York at the time, but living here in Orlando, and I really saw the tales of two cities, you know, in New York, and nothing ever happened. You couldn't tell there was a recession, but you, you, I drove to, you know, flew to Orlando every weekend, and I saw more and store, more stores going out of business and more restaurants going out of business. It was actually depressing. So I think we learned a little then. So, because I've seen a lot of people around, you know, bringing more technology, more manufacturing, more, you know, healthcare related biotech and so on um and and i and i hear a lot about changing again diverting for me in a service economy we shall see the only thing that we can do now at least that i can do is focus on the hispanic chamber of commerce make sure that our members are very much aware of what we just went through and actually encourage and migrate some of the members to other industries that are not so service related. So mm-hmm. at least from that point of view, 
I can guarantee you there's going to be an extraordinary effort to get that. We cannot continue as as a region to be dependent on restaurants and hotels. I mean, that's just dismal. Well, John Diamas is the Executive Board Chair of the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce of Metro Orlando. John, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Up next, a look at the art and life of Vincent van Gogh through the lens of two photographers. Patrick Kahn with Snap Orlando talks about the gallery's newest exhibit. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Snap, Orlando's newest exhibit, takes viewers on the journey through the life and art of Vincent van Gogh as seen through the lens of two photographers. Snap executive director and co-curator Patrick Kahn joined me for a conversation about the exhibition Art in the Age of Social Media and about running a gallery in a pandemic. Thank you so much for joining me, Patrick. Hello, good day, Matt. It's uh, very nice to see you again. So the new exhibit is The Van Gogh Effect in Vincent's Footsteps and Spirit. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what's going on here. You've got two photographers and they're kind of reimagining Van Gogh, or it's almost like a, a kind of a pilgrimage through the footsteps of, of places he visited and, and painted in, right? You absolutely said it in the right words. It is a pilgrimage. It's, uh, it is kind of retracing his journey of his life um, by photographing places where he has been and kind of seeing where uh, things stand today uh, with, you know, knowing that this was part of his passage. Um, it, it is really spectacular because um, the exhibition is, is with two photographers, both from National Geographic, and uh, one photographed everything in black and white, so it gives it definitely kind of like a nostalgic feel. And then the other one photographed everything in color, but very muted, very vintage-like. And when you go through the exhibition, you really have a sense of um, almost being in that time period. And it is those places that they actually photographed in 2018 and 2019. It's very recent. Uh, but um, again, you, 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 you're retracing his, his journey and you have the impression that you are just next to him in, in this environment. It's interesting too. I mean, the the two photographers, Lynn Johnson and Patricia Lanza. I mean, when you think National Geographic, you think of the the photography, right? I mean, that's that's what always drew me to National Geographic, and still does now. I think it's more the the imagery that rather than the writing, and just having them focus exclusively on this one subject is pretty spectacular. It it is a, a project that actually started with National Geographic. Uh, they had commissioned. Um, Lynn Johnson, 25 years ago, to do a reportage. It was part of a, um, of a um, feature that they called Lullaby in Color. Funny enough, she photographed in black and white. But it seems like um, this project uh, didn't see the light. And, um, and, and Lynn revisited this 25 years later with Patricia and said, let's go to Europe and let's just do this project where we retrace his footsteps. So it is photography, but again, the way they photographed it is very painterly. Some some of those images, you you have to look closer to really realize those are photographs. 
there's an image in the catalogue for this work of a, a painting that hangs uh, in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. And yes, that's the self-portrait, yeah. It, indeed, and, and people are gathered around it taking photos of the picture with their smartphones. And that, I mean, that's something that always strikes me as interesting whenever I visit a museum and there's a famous painting. Like, there's this instinct people have to try and kind of capture something of it. Like, it's not enough just to, to look at it like, you know, there's something so magnetic about this picture. And it's not just, I mean, there are other paintings and works of art that people sort of have this response to too as well. But it's like, there's something you want to try and capture in it. And somehow just standing there and looking at it isn't quite enough. It is true. And it is also a certain sense of validation uh, in today's, you know, social media world where you can just immediately send that picture and say, I am here. You know, I was there, I, I experienced it, and uh, I want to share that with you, you know? So it has that uh, that connotation of pride, you know, of being experiencing a certain moment. I wonder, too, this is something else that occurred to me looking at these, these uh, photographs. What would Van Gogh make of, you know, contemporary the contemporary world? Like, what would his artistic response be to the year 2020 or 2021? It's uh, an interesting question. I, I couldn't put myself in his shoes, but I would put I would I would say that he he was a tortured artist, and living in the, in today's world, um, I don't know if he would be thriving or be overly depressed. But um, you know, it is it is a very torturous world right now, and um, the, you know, like I, when I was looking at his journey and I was looking at his paintings. Uh, his environment is absolutely gorgeous. His paintings also are, but yet he was still a tortured artist. Um, he was definitely uh, spending a lot of time in nature, away from civilization, though he was in, in the environment of Paris, but that was just to attend the, the schools. Uh, he was on the outskirt of Paris where he was actually living. Um, so I think he would probably do the same retreat in some environment where he can just uh, be with himself and his and co- correspond and connect with nature. Another really fascinating aspect of this particular exhibition and the, the work of these two photographers is uh, the, the glimpse into the St. Paul Asylum, uh, which was there's an element of that where there's art as part of the, the therapy or it's part of the, the practice that goes on there. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, uh, what that is and, and how that sort of fits into this exhibition. Yeah, so that's that's really a fascinating part and uh, element of this exhibition. Now, the first thing is, you know, in Van Gogh's life, um, you know, there's a lot that is uh, being uh, shown of his environment in Arles and then in Saint-Rémy, which is the asylum, and then eventually he went to uh, Auvers-sur-Oise, which is next to Paris, and that's where he died. So... In those three years, those are the last three years of his life. Um, the one year where he spent uh, uh, at his asylum was very significant for him uh, because that's where you know he, he was complete. He was treated for his madness. Um, and today, this asylum is actually um, a, a, a sort of refuge for women who are also healing through painting and. Um, the beautiful part is that they are seeing exactly what he was seeing from his window 
uh, his environment, that hasn't changed at all. So throughout all this time since uh, 1890 to today, uh, the environment, the surroundings are completely intact and they are, you know, one and one on one with nature. So today it's, it's very active and they have uh, all these women uh, who are having their studios and painting in there. And so uh, our exhibition has three rooms. The third room is completely dedicated to uh, documentation of those women. What's been the reaction of uh, visitors to SNAP so far who've seen this exhibition? Like what, what, what are you seeing kind of resonate with people? Um, you know, this exhibition is so timely right now because it's a very introspective exhibition as opposed to a lot of the uh, exhibitions that we've had previously, which can be a little bit more, you know, um, you know, fashion oriented or street photography, you know, very loud. This one is very introspective and it needs to, you need to spend time in front of it, each image and, and see the context and understand it. And the fact that we are doing this increment uh, of visitors uh, that come very sparsely uh, with social distancing and masks um, gives that context uh, a lot of power. Uh, it, it helps that people really spend time with the image. So uh, the reaction has been excellent. And, um, and we have a, a, a lot of daily visitors in that barely um, empty environment, but it's a constant flow. It's it's really great. It's it's perfect timing. I wonder too, Patrick, uh, if you could sort of talk to me a little bit about how you're approaching the the reopening and and uh, you know thinking about what the gallery is going to do in 2021 because life is returning in some ways to normal. There, you know, some of the social distancing measures are still in place, but more people are getting out and about and returning to life. You know, pre 2020. How did you approach that? as a gallery and how does that sort of play out in this particular exhibition? So in this particular exhibition, as I just said, uh, we did an opening night with um, time slots where there was a maximum of 20 people per time slot every half an hour. Uh, in the daily visiting, um, we, we do see a flow of very uh, sparse uh, visitors. So at this moment right now, as long as we have like a security in the front, as long as people keep the distance and keep their mask, everything's going on smoothly. The bigger part is the opening events. You know, um, it's always been great to have a spectacular opening event with a lot of people. Usually you reach to have the biggest number of people and most attendance. And obviously now it's like very uh, limited. That being said, we have two more exhibitions coming this year, one in July and one in October. So the one in October, I feel that we are uh, on route to be full-fledged, uh, big opening again, uh, it seems. Uh, we're waiting to see, but um, this one is with Red Uber, you know, who was the uh, photographer. The former Orlando Sentinel photographer. Oh, you know, you know, Red. So this exhibition is the actually first gallery exhibition and retrospective of Red Uber's work over the past 45 years with the Orlando Sentinel. And it is sponsored by the Orlando Sentinel. Uh, and uh, we, are, you know, Red is vaccinated. He's very excited. And we're both looking forward to possibly have a full-fledged opening by the time we open in October. And so it is looking like it would be like a full-fledged, you know, 
potential opening. Now, the one in July is uh, different because we have to play day by day. And it is also something that um, we are not 100% sure yet if it's, we're going to do it by increment or if we are going to have a wider opening. Last few times I've spoken to you, Patrick, though, you've been doing some interesting things in terms of kind of taking the, the artworks you know, to the streets in, in terms of the way people can interact with them, right? I mean, there was that um, that exhibition where people could go to a space in the city and there was an app they could use to to kind of see something. So do you feel like that gives you a bit of a, a, a head start when it comes to thinking about doing things differently when there's something like a pandemic which, you know, shuts down your ability in some ways to just have people come and go in the gallery as, as you would have pre-pandemic? Yeah, I mean, you know, this was uh, obviously not planned this way, but it is the perfect um, situation. The project you're talking about is uh, City Unseen, which is a uh, augmented reality public art project. And there's two components to this. One is the fact that it's outside. Uh, so you're not uh, constrained by the walls. And then, you, again, the outside is always safer than being inside with the, with the pandemic uh, right now. Second thing is it's public art and uh, therefore you can visit it at leisure at any given moment and you can uh, have the opportunity to keep your social distancing because you don't necessarily have a lot of people at the same time who are going to experience this, uh, this installation. So uh, having art in augmented reality uh, throughout the city of Orlando is, I think, great for these times right now. Having said that, though, I mean, there's there's something you can't really replicate when it comes to the gallery experience, right? I mean, and, and just thinking about this particular exhibition, as you said, taking time, going from photo to photo, sort of taking your time with each piece, it's a bit hard to to replicate that completely without a, without a physical gallery that you can invite people into, right? So you must be pretty excited about actually being able to have people come back and, and appreciate art in, in situ again? You know, I absolutely agree. Um, the only thing I don't agree with you is that it cannot be replicated because actually you could have this as a virtual exhibition in the open with a click of a button and you have like the information coming up. So you could do this virtually. Uh, but that being said, uh, there's this palpable uh, feeling of being, you know, like in front of the arts in person that cannot be replicated. That is true. It's almost like uh, the same thing as, let's say, reading a newspaper and being on the Internet, you know, right. or reading a magazine and being on the Internet. You know that the, the smell of, of printing and, the, you know, like turning the page that you are able to do this physically is, is, a, is a human experience that you cannot replicate. Yeah, I think it comes back to a little bit of what we were talking about before when people feel the urge to whip out their smartphone and take a photograph of a famous artwork. It's like, I was here, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. Have you been going a little bit stir-crazy over the last 12 months? How have you coped with the pandemic? Honestly, I've, I found it, it was a, a really good time to regroup, uh, re-strategize and kind of... Uh, rethink the world, um, not just, you know, like the world in general, but also like the, 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 the practice. Uh, how does a gallery operate? I mean, obviously, uh, a lot of things had to change. Um, you know, we had two galleries where this is uh, the show that we're talking about is at the Snap Downtown. 
the snap on the Colonial, we closed uh, a little bit earlier than our lease termination. And that was also due to COVID and the very high rent, uh, you know, uh, pricing. It didn't make sense to just keep on having very high priced walls where you could just put art and people could not barely visit it, you know. So um, it was time for a change and I always welcome change and I always think it's a good thing. It's There's a little bit of suffering that goes along with it, but there's a lot of uh, strategizing that was very helpful actually. So you're in a new location now? It's not a new location. We had both, but we just uh, eliminated one and we are in the downtown. The address is 420 East Church Street. Are you sad to say goodbye to the old space as well? Yes and no. Bittersweet, you know. It was it, it was bitter to the sense that it was a lot of memories and we we did a lot of events over there that was, you know, really memorable uh, for all of us. Um, sweet because it was very hard on month to month, you know, to sustain it. Yeah, it's an interesting area of the city too, right? I mean, there's 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 quite a lot going on in terms of street art and culture, and and it has a certain kind of flavor to it you, that you don't find elsewhere, right? The Mills Fifty District. That is true. That is true. But I do think that uh, every district is uh, striving to to have that type of uh, you know energy, and um, Orlando is still in full-fledged development. And so I think that a lot of areas are going to experience something similar and it's, it's growing every day. It's growing, you know, it kind of reminds me like when I used to live in LA, uh, when I was seeing different areas of LA that growing back in the eighties, I I feel like I'm seeing something similar here in Orlando, but only 20 or 30 years later. Just in general, Patrick, then how do you feel about 2021 and beyond and the, the, appetite for art and and Orlando's place in it? So the funny part about as when you say appetite for art is what I did learn and it was really interesting is that during 2020, if there's something that people don't need right away is art, you know, it's like first food, medication. I mean, you know, you realize the place of art in people's priorities on a daily basis. But that being said, art is food for the thoughts, food for the mind, and it is something that is essential for the life of a city. Uh, but it is not in the priority of, uh, of every day. So I do think that there's going to be a, a renaissance, a, a regrowth of interest for the art uh, that was I, I actually, I think, put in the back burner because people were like having other priorities to deal with or, or interests. Um, and I think 2022, as soon as, uh, you know, we are past the pandemic, hopefully, um, there will be, I, I hope people are going to be responsible, uh, you know, in terms of the social networking and not go crazy, but there will be um, a great enthusiasm for an appetite for life in general. Mm-hmm. Well, Patrick Khan is the executive director and co-curator of SNAP. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to be with you, and thank you so much. Up next, we'll revisit a conversation with Carl Hyacin, Dave Barry, and Barbara Peterson of the First Amendment Foundation about press freedom, politics, and responding to critics. We're back in a minute.
This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Carl Hyacin retired from the Miami Herald last week. He was hired by the paper in 1976 and went on to win renown for his hard-hitting columns and later his comic crime novels. I talked with Hyacin back in 2016, along with fellow newspaper columnist and humorist Dave Barry, who's also known for poking fun at the weirdness of Florida, and Barbara Peterson with the First Amendment Foundation. We spoke a few weeks before the 2016 presidential election. They talked about press freedom, access to information and politics. Let's listen back to that conversation. Dave Barry, I've got to ask you, so you're a humorist primarily. What's important to you about access to government information, uh, files, that kind of thing? Well, for me, it's not so much that, because I don't do any research. I mean, that would be journalists. Well, well, you you did some for your most recent book, though, right? You took a road trip. But I mean, I don't don't usually have to pry secrets out of people. And and if I did, I would just make them up. But I do do run into First Amendment issues. Uh, If you write humor, you offend people. And if you offend people, they almost always, some of them anyway, conclude that the solution is to make you stop being able to write those things, various ways. and increasingly, uh, in our society, people have feel that if they are offended, they have some kind of legal right to prevent you from saying whatever is offending, or whoever is offending them from expressing whatever is offending them, which is to me disturbing. And I think it's it's important that people understand that the most, uh, to me anyway, the most fundamental thing about the First Amendment is you don't have the right to tell anybody not to say anything. You just don't have it. You have the right to be offended, and you have the right to express your view about it, and you have the right to economically boycott anybody whose expression you don't agree with, but you don't have the right to tell them they can't say it. When was the last time somebody tried to get you to stop writing something or retract something you'd written? It's like every day. <laughs> it really is. But when I, when I wrote a regular column for the Miami Herald, um, it, was not, it was just nonstop. Uh, people... The lawsuit threat. And I discovered this kind of a backhanded way. We had a a House counsel at the Miami Herald, and he presented a – he did a presentation on libel and and slander law and other issues like that. And he was always talking about all lawsuits that had been filed against the Miami Herald, right? And I I remember going up to him afterward and saying – how come I never get sued? And he put his arm around me and said, what makes you think you never get sued? And the answer, the Herald was just, you know, protecting me by just not bothering to tell me. But, yeah, people people think that they can tell you to, to you know, if they don't like what you see, uh, what you said, people think they can make you stop saying it. And I think that's increased rather than decreased in our world. Carl uh, Hyson, does that sort of tally with what you're seeing as far as your columns and, I mean, the kind of things you write in the Miami Hero? I probably don't get as many uh, threat lawsuits as I used to, but I mean, I think also it's because I pretty well stick to public figures who, you know, you, you know, if, at the level of the governor, senator, or presidential candidate, who even though we have a presidential candidate who thinks the answer is to silence his critics, including Saturday Night Live, um, the, the fact is that they've got other. Pro- By the time I'm writing about them, they got other problems. So. Uh, the Herald used to have, a, and I, I hope they still do, sort of a, a great legal team in place that would sort of step in and put an end to this nonsense. I mean, I remember I, I referred to the mayor of Miami once as Mayor Loco because he showed up in his bathrobe in, in the lobby uh, wearing a bathrobe to check a headline. At least that, he had know, a bathrobe on. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it could have been a lot worse. And um, and he, he took umbrage at that. And that was, uh, I think that didn't stay around long because he's a public figure and uh, you have, you're allowed in this country and always have been commentary on a public figure doing his job 
as long as you don't allege them to have a loathsome disease or commit a hideous crime, the, the libel laws are pretty clear. But there was a whole generation of, of uh, you know, mutants on the internet right now who have no concept of what the laws are, and so they get mad at anything and they think they can sue it. And there's, there may be some lawyer who's willing to, to, to give it a shot for money, but that's, it's always, like Dave said, the issue of silencing. It's just, it's not answering your critics, it's silencing your critics, and, uh, and, and, and that is not the hallmark of democracy. We don't gag people in this country. You can challenge them, and like Dave says, if, you, if they don't like what, they're, what we're doing, they don't have to buy the Miami Herald, they don't have to buy our books, um, and, and just, you know, and I always tell people when they write, if they're upset about the, if this really upset you so much, don't read the column anymore. Read something else in, in the paper. You don't have, nobody's putting a gun to your head and making you read this and get all upset the way you are. You're ruining your family's life. I go on a little bit in these responses and tell them that they're making themselves miserable for no reason. But the fact is, it's all about freedom of speech. Do you enjoy responding to readers' complaints and, and criticisms? No, and I don't. I mean, I have some standard little responses that that you know go out i don't pay a lot of personal attention to them especially the ones that come in crayon those i <laughs> I, I generally don't answer those at all because a good response to use um i used to use this pretty often when when i would get a really angry letter was i would say you know we're gonna have to cancel your subscription <laughs> and they, and they'd be like, wait what <laughs> they'd be furious because that was going to be their threat you yeah, know right. you know and it, when you tell them that you're going to do it, they get very offended. You can't cancel my subscription. Well, I, I forget which, who, which writer taught me this. He would write letters back saying, I'm, dear, dear so-and-so, I'm very sorry to inform you that some idiot has gotten a hold of your stationery and is sending out these outrageous, stupid letters in your name. And I'm just telling you this so that you can deal with it legally at your end. I'm very sorry to have to tell you. And I'm going to include, and you would include the letter that they'd originally written back to them. Barbara Peterson, do you think that the climate we're in now is kind of more prone to people trying to sue reporters, journalists, columnists, humor writers? Well, I think there is an increase in in the attempt to litigate. Uh, um, People, as Dave said, think that they have a right to be free of being offended. Uh, And I have to keep reminding um, elected officials that there's a reason we call them public servants. They work for us. And because we're their employers, we have a right to criticize and praise uh, the job they're doing. And I'm seeing more and more and more uh, local governments, cities and county commissions, trying to pass rules um, about public comment at a public meeting, saying you're free to praise us, but if you want to criticize us, you can't do it by name. So I can say somebody up there behind the dais uh, did this. And so we're seeing more and more of that than trying to shut down public comment. Uh, And that's really disturbing. I mean, this is a participatory democracy, but they only want participation when it suits them and and it's to their benefit. You know where it's truly scary is on college campuses where, you know, that used to be the place where you were most likely to be able to express yourself without... uh, fear of, of being uh, threatened, now it's the least likely place. Now college campus, well, not all of them, but many college campuses, if a speaker is invited by a group of students who would like to hear that speaker and other students decide that that speaker is unacceptable, more often than not, that person gets uninvited. I mean, this, the, the students who don't want to hear that person's point of view win 
over and over again. And to me, that's really disturbing. That's not a legal issue. I mean, they have the right to invite or uninvite anybody they want. It's a college's decision. But to me, it's, it, sets, it sends completely the wrong message to the students about what the nature of learning is and what an education is and what freedom is. Uh, college newspapers, do you, do you kind of keep tabs on what kind of humor is going down in college newspapers these days? And is it the same as when you were in college? Well, it was a lot more sophomoric when I was in college, but they, they suffer from the same problem. Uh, I hate to use the word politically correct, the term politically correct, but I will, because it, we all kind of know what it refers to. But uh, if you write the wrong thing for a college paper now, you are likely to be... Uh, subject to incredible level of harassment and possibly discipline from the college for writing something that offended a group of students. And to me, that's outrageous. If the students are unable to figure out that somebody's writing something they disagree with, there, there are ways to respond to that besides trying to silence the student or punish the student whom you disagree with. Um, I, I find it troubling. I'm wondering, um, Carl Lawson, what your character, Skink, would think of this political climate we're in. Uh. <laughs> Well, he's the you know, it's a, fictionally he's a he's a go, he's a guy that went nuts while he was governor of Florida and just ran screaming out of Tallahassee with no clothes on. I suspect he would react with even more horror to what we've we've been through and what we're about to go through. It looks like um, in this election. I mean, you know, you you always think you hope at least in fiction you're creating a world that will never come to pass. In a way, I mean that's part of satire. Is you're creating something so absurd that hopefully it will never happen. Um, but then this year has changed all that. We're now in a realm of th- things are happening that none of us ever thought could possibly happen. So and it's it's it because it's a little depressing, you know. It's how do you how do you stay ahead of that? That was Carl Hyacin, Dave Barry, and Barbara Peterson in a conversation that first aired on Intersection in November 2016. Hyacin retired from the Miami Herald last week. He first joined the paper in 1976. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance from Clarissa Moon. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find archived shows on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. Your support helps keep shows like Intersection on the air and it supports the reporting of the WMFE news team. Make a contribution during our spring drive for 1-800-785-2020 or give online at wmfe.org. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.